All right, well, as you know, we're in the book of Joel this morning, Joel chapter 3. Um, before I get into Joel chapter 3, I need to go back to last week's sermon because I said something rather carelessly, something that needed more precision, and I feel like I need to write that. Um, so here's what I said last week. The old covenant was salvation through man's effort. Well, that all by itself is incorrect. That's an incorrect statement. Salvation was always and always will be grace alone through faith alone. That's how it was in the Old Testament. That's how it is now in the New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant. But my thinking behind that statement, salvation in the Old Covenant was through man's effort, is that this is what people turned it into. People turned it into a way to become saved by performing these good deeds, these righteous deeds, by accomplishing the law through their own efforts. And they, just as we do, were trying to self-justify. And this utterly failed them, and this utterly fails us, because no one is good enough. We know that through biblical teaching. No one is good enough to fulfill the law, to obey the law. The only way to be saved as we have seen in Joel chapter 2, is to call upon the name of the Lord, upon the name of Jesus Christ, and give Him our eternity. Give Him our lives, not lived perfectly, but he, He lived the perfect life. So we entrust our lives to Him. We give Him lordship over our lives. And I've said as much as, we were pre- as I was preaching through the book of Galatians, and we saw these words. It is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. No one. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. So the law is outside of faith. If you live by the the law, you have to live by every single detail found in the law. As I said, all 613 commandments. The law was given to reveal the perfection of God and how desperately Far we all fall short of it, and nobody can be saved through their efforts of law obedience. The law shows us we need His grace. The law shows us that we need salvation. The law shows us that we are sinners. And yet we have this propensity, in each one of us, we have this propensity to be law abiders, to try to earn our own salvation, to try to self-justify, to be right. Nobody's going to tell me I'm wrong or I'm a sinner. Nobody wants to hear that. So we have this propensity to turn salvation into law. So that's what I was talking about last week, or that's at least what I had in my mind last week when I said salvation in the old covenant was through man's effort. I just wanted to clear that up. I hope that's clear now. Because thinking that at some point God required people to follow 613 commandments in order to be saved would be very wrong. I don't want anybody to think that. Okay. So that's clearing some stuff up. Let's move now out of the last week's sermon and into this week's sermon because today we're talking about God's passion for his people, his passion for justice, and the judgment that will come for injustice. We live in this world where the concept of divine judgment is abhorrent, is hated. 
Nobody likes to think about the idea of God seeing all things, all things that we do personally, all things that are done corporately, and holding a record of all of them. Bringing payment for those things upon us as humans at some point in the future. That we would have to be held accountable for our sins. God is a God who forgets no injustice. And this is a scary idea for many people. And if it's not a scary idea for all people, they are deluded by the prince of the power of the air, by Satan. So in the midst of all of that, judgment, God holding a record of every single wrong committed, I want to show you today how much God cares for his people. These two things, judgment and God caring for his people, are so beautifully intertwined. And it's, it's amazingly clear through our passage today. Before I read it, I want to pray, so would you join with me? God, as we consider these words uh, that have some difficult, challenging things in them, uh, I pray that we're also seeing the beauty of your heart, your passion for your glory, your passion for righteousness, your passion for justice, and your hatred of injustice. And in all of that, woven through it all, is your great love for your people of whom we are if we have come to Jesus Christ. It's unfathomable that you would have such a passion for us who are sinners, who are doers of injustice. But as we sang about, and as Josiah prayed about, it is this way because you sent your son to die, to face justice for us. Thank you. Lord, as we hear these words today and as we dive into them, teach us. And I pray that you would keep me from error today. In Jesus' name, amen. Joel chapter 3, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read to verse 8. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem... I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, that all the, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own heads swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them and I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabians, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. A 
a little review. The Jews had hardened their heart towards God, and they wandered away. They lived in sin, and they cared little for God and for God's ways, and so God brought judgments upon them through the drought and through the locust, and he made a desolation of their land, and he destroyed their economy, and he brought them to the verge of starvation. The promised land had become a wasteland, a reflection of the wasteland that was in their hearts. And as God had intended, through all of those judgments, the people turned and repented back to God. They, they brought their whole hearts back to him. And God restores relationship. And all that he destroyed, he restores, or he promises that he will restore. And then he promises a salvation even greater, a salvation we've been looking at for the past three weeks. On some future day, on the day of the Lord, God will pour out his spirit upon his people. He will reveal himself in a totally new way and establish a new covenant with his people so that the people will know him and he will know them in a way never before seen in interaction between God and man. A new covenant, a new age. But that day of the Lord is not just a day of salvation, it's also a day of judgment, a day of destruction, a day of terror, a day of the wrath of God. And so this combination of salvation and judgment is exactly what we're seeing here at the end of Joel 2 and into uh, chapter 3. It's what we see as we begin our passage in chapter 3. So look again at verses 1 and 2. For behold, in those days, at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel. I'll stop there. So what we're seeing is this great reversal in the book of Joel. God was judging his people for two chapters. We were reading about God judging his people, and now God turns and he's judging the nations. God called all of his people to assemble in Jerusalem at the temple and rend their hearts in repentance. Now God, God is summoning all the nations into the valley of Jehoshaphat where he will exact his judgments upon them. So there's a a symmetry and a reversal happening here. And this is the final judgment that God is talking about. This judgment that's coming in those days at that time in the valley of Jehoshaphat is the final judgment. This is the eschatological judgment, the end. As you read this, all of these things are happening in those days at that time. And so you might think that those days and that time are the same days and the same times. And that would be natural from our 21st century perspective, but that is not exactly what's going on here. We already know, living on the other side of the new covenant, that God's Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost, given to the church. And I don't think anybody has yet faced the final judgment as far as on a cosmic scale. So we're living between these two events that Joel is saying is happening in those days at that time, almost like it's simultaneous. But we know from our experience 
from how history has unfolded, these are not simultaneous events. So we're going to see, as we move through the prophecy today, this mixing and mingling of timelines, things happening at different times, all kind of being put together um, in this prophetic passage. But this is quite normal for prophecy in the Old Testament, to take things happening at different times and put them into the same story, the same narrative. That's what we're getting in this prophetic passage. Different times, different things happening, all though, all in the final times. In the eschaton, the eschatological time, the time of new covenant, the time of the Messiah, the time of the last days. Again, Joel Joel is not, though, trying to create for you a timeline. People will read these things and try to draw up a timeline for it. That's not what Joel is doing. It's not even his mind to give us a timeline. What Joel is doing is trying to show us, reveal to us what Yahweh is concerned about. What does Yahweh's heart beat for? That's what we're seeing in this prophetic passage. It beats for his people. It beats for justice. And it beats to bring judgment upon the unjust. And so God gathers the nations into the valley of Jehoshaphat, which is not a literal place. You will not find it on any map drawn up at any time. The name Jehoshaphat means Yahweh judges. So what Joel is doing is imagining this great valley, which one day will contain all the peoples of all the nations, and there God will judge them. Some people associate this valley with the valley of Megiddo, Armageddon Valley, But there is no direct correlation. What Joel is really doing is referencing Zephaniah 3.8. For my decision is to gather the nations, to assemble the kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed." Indeed, we are talking about the eschatological final judgment. Where all the earth is consumed in God's jealousy for his people, for his glory. Which also does not literally mean that he's going to burn the earth. But that his wrath will be finally poured out. And all this anger... All this wrath, all of this justice is being poured out because of God's concern for his people. He is committed to his people. And that is what we see in, uh, uh, when we read Joel 3 verse 2, we see this. I will enter into judgment with them on behalf of my people, my heritage Israel. It's something that's just so easy to read over as you're going through Joel chapter 3. And it is such a powerful statement. The wrongs that are committed against God's people are wrongs that are committed against Him. He is identifying Himself so profoundly with His people. 
Their pain is his pain. Their hurts is his hurt. What happens to them in some way is happening to him. And he will not forget it. He will not neglect it. He will repay it. And this takes us all the way back to the very first person of Israel where God promises this to him. Now the Lord said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We're seeing that promise given to Abraham hundreds and hundreds of years ago now being enacted or promised, prophesied about here in Joel. The nations are judged or cursed because they have dishonored Abraham's descendants, the people of Judah, God's people. Back in Joel now, we read about the the horrific ways in which the nations have dishonored God's people. Look again at verses 2 and 3. On behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel, I will judge them because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. There's three charges levied right there. One, the people of Israel have been scattered and taken far away from their land. Two, the promised land has been divided up and given to other peoples. And three, the lives of God's people have been devalued. They have been dehumanized. So we'll go through these more in depth. First, the scattering of the people. Some of the mightiest nations on the planet at that time, Assyria and Babylon, have taken the people of Israel captive, and they have scattered them all over the known world. Assyria and Babylon, they've committed these injustices, but every single nation that has allowed these Jews to remain as captives within their borders is complicit in the injustice. To allow this kind of slavery on any level makes you complicit with the injustice. Now, even though these injustices had happened in Israel's past at the time of Joel's writing, God hasn't forgotten. They're before him now as they were when they happened. Injustice will be repaid. There will be justice. And more nations, God knew, would come to do the same to his people, especially the most powerful one of them all, Rome. Secondly, the second indictment, the land had been divided up by other nations once the people had been dragged off and scattered, taken out of their land. Then the nations divide up the land and they claim it for themselves. To take this land from God's people, to steal it from God's people is to steal it from him. It's his possession that he gives to his people, and when they take it, they take it from him. They have no right over it. It would be like you own your property, 
And while you're on vacation, maybe, some builder comes through, subdivides your land, and sells it off, and when you come back, there are other people occupying it. You own the land, though. Indeed, that would be an injustice, infuriating, and you would feel totally helpless. In, in verse 3, it talks about casting lots for his people, for God's people. And I wonder if there's a parallel here with Jesus, whose clothing was divided and lots were cast for it with the Romans. Let's leave that there. You're going to see some more of these parallels. So there's a third injustice an indictment against the nations. That is, God's people had been severely, disgustingly dehumanized. One night with a prostitute, the value of somebody's little boy, a bottle of wine, the worth of a little girl, The children of Israel were so degraded that they were only worth a moment of drunkenness or debauchery, a life for a fleeting gratification. These three indictments so stirred in God His wrath that he will pour it out upon these nations who dared to commit such atrocities against his people. For to act unjustly towards them is to act unjustly to him. What they did to them, they have done to him. As Jesus said, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. You can hear this kind of relationship between God and his people as the passage continues. Injustices committed against God himself. Look at verse 4. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your head swiftly and speedily. You can see it in his language, right? He's, you're doing it to me, God says. God takes injustices against his people personally. But right here, as you get to verse 4, you can see that the prophecies begin moving around and the timeline is beginning to get a little bit blurred. The Phoenicians, which is Tyre and Sidon, and the Philistines have committed atrocities against the Jews. Now, we don't know exactly when this happened because Joel doesn't tell us, and we don't know exactly when the book of Joel was written. But a number of scholars speculate that when Babylon conquered Jerusalem and plundered the temple, there were the Phoenicians and the Philistines right alongside them, plundering and pillaging as well. And perhaps there was another time where they were committing these atrocities against the Jews, and we just don't have it because it's been lost to history. But here's what we do know. God's no longer talking about judgments at the end of time. 
Because these judgments that he then lists, they're going to be coming upon the Phoenicians and the Philistines soon. Seemingly before this new covenant is established. And the indictments against the Phoenicians and Philistines, they're very different than the indictments against the nations. Some similarities, but differences. The nations that are gathered in the Valley of Jehoshaphat. So verses 5 and 6, we see them. For you have taken my silver and my gold, and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. So at a minimum, the Philistines and the Phoenicians are complicit in taking God's own silver and gold. God's own silver and gold. This means that they've plundered the temple. That's where God's silver and gold came from, the temple. So somehow they are guilty of plundering the gold and silver from the temple. And then they took those implements of worship, once used to worship Yahweh, they set them up in their own temples and worshiped their false gods with those same objects. What an abomination to God. Tyre and Sidon especially, they're port cities right along the northern coast of the Mediterranean. And they established trading routes that went all over the world, all over the Mediterranean world, especially Greece. Greece, whose empire is building right now, and they are hungry for slaves. If the Jews are going to be sold as slaves internationally, then Tyre and Sidon are the obvious marketplace. So these things that are being leveled, levied against the Phoenicians and the Philistines, I'll put it in modern terms. God is accusing these nations of ethnic cleansing. Now we don't know the particulars again, but they're guilty of destroying the Jewish religious identity. They're selling the Jews as slavery with the intention of removing them from the land, right? Dispersing them among the nations that, they, that their identity might totally dissolve into those nations and they will no longer make any claim on the land, but they can keep it for themselves. This is ethnic cleansing. And make no mistake, the ones that are being sold are the ones that have not been killed in battle. The Phoenicians and the Philistines believe that they have found their solution to their Jewish problem. And perhaps that is one reason that this prophecy is mixed in with the other prophecies. Because the Jews will be treated similarly as history progresses. The Greeks and the Romans and the Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages and eventually Nazi Germany would all try to solve what they saw as the Jewish problem. Back to the Phoenicians and the Philistines. God has specific judgments for them. Verses 7 and 8. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabians, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. So the atrocities committed by the Phoenicians and the Philistines, God is going to bring those same atrocities upon their heads. 
That sounds harsh. Where is the God of grace and mercy? This is certainly, it certainly seems to be the Old Testament principle of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You did this to me, I'll do it to you. Exodus 21, verses 23 through 25. If there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. That comes in a chapter devoted to talking about slaves. These same atrocities are going to be coming upon the Phoenicians and the Philistines. Some commentators see a startling fulfillment to these prophecies. I'm going to quote theologian Leslie C. Allen. The people of Sidon were sold into slavery by Antiochus III in 345 BC, while the citizens of Tyre and Gaza were enslaved by Alexander the Great in 332 BC. No doubt, Jews were among the buyers. That is startling. God with righteous judgment, takes an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. His word does not fail. And now I've got to put a parenthesis in here. This kind of judgment, eye for an eye, tooth for the tooth, can only be enacted when you are righteous perfectly righteous. Only a perfect law keeper knows what it means to rightly take an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So that means none of us should be taking eyes and teeth. This is for God alone. Rather, what we do is we turn the other cheek. You've heard it said, Jesus said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other one also. So rather than repaying, rather than angrily demanding your own rights, Jesus asks us to be meek and to be gracious. He also said, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. They take your land. Who cares? You're getting the earth. We live in evil times. And our world seems to be on fire. And it's confusing and it's hard to navigate. And so it's good for us to remember these things. To be meek. To be gracious. And being meek does not mean being weak. It is the opposite. Do you realize that the opposite of weak is meek? Because somebody who is meek has power to do something about the wrong. And they choose not to do it. It's restraint. Gracious, loving restraint. So you take that second blow. In the same way that the king of kings took the nail in the right hand and the left also. Let's close that parenthesis. 
Our eight verses today are not primarily about judgment of the nations, nor are they about the Philistines and the Phoenicians and their judgments. Our passage is about how much God cares for His people. There are injustices, great and small, from ethnic cleansing to somebody gossiping about you. And God sees all of them, all of them. If you are one of God's people, if you have called upon the name of Jesus Christ to be saved, then the pain that you feel, God feels that too. Wrongs committed against you are wrongs committed against Him. God identifies Himself with us, even in our greatest pains and injustice that happens to us. And there is no better place to see this than on the cross, where He identifies Himself with us supremely. And God did not need to step down from glory and become a man. And he did not need to live in poverty and in obscurity. And he did not need to be rejected and mocked and beaten and shamed and killed. Name an injustice. He knows it. He lived it. And when that injustice happens to you, whatever it is, on whatever scale, he knows it again. The writer of Hebrews says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. So when somebody gossips about you or disrespects you, or lies about you, or takes something from you, or harms you, or whatever else, you might be tempted to lash out and to get even, or to grow bitter, or to be passive-aggressive, or whatever. Rather, be meek. Approach the throne of grace where you will find a source of mercy that will overwhelm any sense of righting that wrong, any sense of exacting that justice for yourself. Approach the throne of grace where you will find help in time of need. That covers a lot of things, but especially in the context of Hebrews, that covers what you want to do when, you have been, when there's an injustice committed against you. God will help you work through that injustice. You don't need to right every wrong, and you can't. God will. He promises that He will. Now, don't get me wrong. We do need to fight injustice. We need to fight against racism and slavery and abortion and all the other injustices that exist in our world, and if we're not fighting against them, maybe you need to ask, does that make you complicit in them? But when an injustice happens against you, personally, your hope is not in righting that wrong. 
Your hope is in the God who will right that wrong, who remembers that wrong, who was wounded by that wrong. Your hope is in Him. He will bring all the nations to the valley of Jehoshaphat and bring justice once and for all. Every wrong that has been committed will be undone, will be righted. Maybe it will happen in your day. And maybe it will happen in the valley of Jehoshaphat. You don't know. But God knows. And so trust in Him. He sees and He hears and you are one of His and He loves you. I feel compelled to share a brief story. We're all victims of injustice in one way or another. Playing, you know, we're not being victims, but it happens to us, right? And I, you know, I've been gossiped about. And it's infuriating when that happens and seeing where it's spreading and seeing the effects that it causes. And then to do nothing. That's really difficult. In my own heart, bitterness is this ready. Or to do something that I would regret. It's, it's ready. It's right there. But you... All you can do is trust God because what are you going to do? Talk to that person and then all the other people that have been affected by it? It's crazy. It would kill me. And so you wait and you trust in God. And then eventually, in his own time, he brings that around and that person then realizes the wrong they have committed and they repent and they say they're sorry and it's a good thing and you receive that. But this part was repented for and not this part. And so you still feel this sense of injustice, even when some measure of justice has been given. And so justice in this world, it's always confusing and impartial and incomplete and doesn't really get it all, right? And so we give it to him and we let it go. And we know that he will write it. He does these things now or in eternity, righting these wrongs because he loves us to such a degree that he sent his only son to unjustly face the wrath that you deserved, that you might have everlasting life. Do you realize that Jesus faced injustice so that he could free you from the justice that you deserve? Jesus faced injustice so you don't have to stand with the nations in the valley of Jehoshaphat. We are all guilty of injustice. And as somebody has gossiped about, against me, I've gossiped about others. We're all guilty of injustice. And these are just the minor ones. And yet because of Christ, I'm not going to be condemned for any of those injustices and neither will you be if you call upon him. Christ was condemned on our behalf. And now all we must do is call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. And God will pour out his Holy Spirit upon you. And then we, who are his people, who have received his Spirit, 
We trust him to right every wrong and not ourselves. Let's pray. Lord, this, you see all these things, the things that we do, the things that people do to us, the things that are happening in our world, from gossip to abortion to ethnic cleansing. And we trust that you will right all of these wrongs, God. These things, they make us burn with anger, at least if we're thinking with your heart. But it's your anger that's just. It's your anger that's right. It's your anger that will be poured out one day, and we give it to you. And in the meantime, while we wait for you to do this, Lord, help us to be meek, to withhold, to restrain, to offer grace, to not grow bitter, but to love all these things. Help us, Lord. Remind us again every day to draw near to your throne of grace and there find help in our time of need. Remind us again of the injustice Christ faced that we didn't have to face justice. And there might we be humbled and grow in our love for you. Thank you for these words, Lord, and I pray that these seeds would bear fruit in each one of our lives. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.